0: The reading tonight is John 21, 1 through 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way gathered there together with Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canada in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, the two. "'Others of his disciples. "'Simon Peter said to them, "'I'm going fishing. "'They said to him, "'We will go with you. "'They went out and got into the boat, "'but that night they caught nothing. "'Just after daybreak, "'Jesus stood on the beach, "'but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. "'Jesus said to them, "'Children, you have no fish, have you?' "'They answered him, "'No. "'He said to them, "'Cast your net to the right side of the boat.' And you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came into the the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of of large fish, 153 of them. And through there were so many that the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and looked at the bread. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he had ra- after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?" He said to them, "Yes, Lord. You know I love you." Jesus said to him, "Feed my lamb The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten the belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this in indication the kind of death in which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord.
1: It's interesting to me that the resurrection appearances are really not at all spectacular. Jesus doesn't manifest in some large arena before lots of people or before powerful people or in a temple or any sort of sanctioned sort of holy place. Not on a mountain or on the back of a chariot that's running through the streets, but rather in a garden, on a lonesome road, in a small room behind a closed door. Maybe it's because the apostles couldn't fake that some large-scale appearance had happened. Or maybe it's because quiet, not flashy, is more how it goes. The nature of how Jesus appears those days and these days. Not so flamboyant as Zeus or Thor. Maybe the revelation of God that unfurls in Jesus, is more down-to-earth. I guess that's the point, right? Down-to-earth. Feet, not wings, skin, bread, water, all sort of salt of the earth, more than all foie gras and champagne. I especially like this resurrection appearance, because it seems so friendly to me, calm after all that's gone on. It's a good story. It's almost breezy, almost a little bit funny, definitely in comparison to the more arduous, repetitive, confounding discourses that the author of John takes us through. I'm in the Father, and you and me, and I and you. Mine are yours, and yours are mine, and his. If you had known me, I would have been, you would have known him. Also, henceforth, you know him and have seen him. What? <laughs> Plus, it takes place on a beach. I like that even if it's not the Caribbean, which I could use right now. It's like there's been all these intense theological monologues, trying to communicate something not very clearly about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, love, death, and resurrection, and it's almost like Peter is finally just like, oh my God, blah, 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 whatever. I'm going fishing. And everyone else is like, yeah, okay, we're coming too. Enough already, trying to make sense of the ungraspable. I'm going fishing. Let the ungraspable swim all around me. I know that's how I feel after Easter. Maybe not that I want to go fishing exactly, but sit by the water, watch the lights, something mindless or mindful, but definitely not rationally calculating. Some interpreters say that this fishing trip is an indication that the disciples have failed in their call to be disciples. They're going back to what they know, their old jobs, fishing, instead of moving forward as disciples. I think those interpreters might be a tad uptight, judgy. The Gospel of John never actually says the disciples ever were fishermen by trade. I think maybe they just want to enjoy themselves there make me like them more? If following Jesus is a relentlessly serious matter, all solemn and joyless, how would it ever be compelling? is it the good news good, desirable, intoxicating even? I don't think that the disciples are regressing here, or failing, or being disobedient. I think maybe they're relaxing. Maybe they're doing exactly the right thing. Maybe this is the best response to death being defeated. Jesus says, it's finished on the cross in John. And what do you do after it's finished? Maybe you're free to enjoy your day. This here, now, nothing to fear in some profoundly thorough way. I'm thinking especially about Peter finally relaxing he's been making frantic misguided attempts to do the right thing throughout the whole gospel jesus moves to wash the disciples feet peter jumps up never jesus says sit down brother jesus tells the disciples i can't follow him where he's going peter says no i would die for you jesus says really i don't think so you'll deny me three times before the night is even over Peter rushes to protect Jesus in the garden, pulls out a sword, cuts someone's ear off. Jesus says, put your sword back in your sheath, Peter, Peter, Peter. When Mary Magdalene tells the disciples she's been to the tomb and the body's gone, Peter takes off running. But the text notes that the other disciples beat him there. It's sort of a strange thing to note, really. Funny. Peter, he doesn't know himself. He overestimates himself. He's like it's, it's like he keeps trying to outrun something, and Jesus keeps stilling him, quieting him, shutting him up. Not in a bad way. Maybe it's the first sign of his conversion, some blossoming of faith or trust, when finally, instead of running, lurching, striving, fighting, insisting, Peter is able to lighten up, breathe, I'm going fishing. There's something about that that sounds like faith to me. Relaxing. The other disciples say, we'll go with you. They aren't vying, they aren't arguing, they aren't trying to prove anything. They're going to go float on a boat in the water. They're out all night and they don't catch fish. But you know what? Maybe they're fine with that. They have a lot to talk about. Maybe they're joking and drinking beer. Not catching fish isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe they're learning something about releasing instead of catching. When Jesus appears on the shore, he calls out to the disciples, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And some interpreters, why can I not say that word? Some interpreters say that Jesus is scolding them here calling them children, like they've been immature, unproductive. But remember earlier on, Jesus told Nicodemus that you have to be born again of water before you can enter the kingdom. I think maybe they're being born again of water. Maybe they have become like children here. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, you wonder what Jesus has been doing all this time since his last appearance. Going through the streets, saying, look at me, look at me, I was raised from the dead. No. And maybe he hasn't been doing anything really all that special. Maybe he's just been wandering the beach, collecting driftwood for his little fire. Maybe after being dead, you have a greater appreciation for what some people call the small things in life how it feels to walk through the sand and bare feet, eating, breathing, the sun on your face, blue, green. Jesus blesses the fishing expedition. I don't think I'd go so far as to call it a miracle. He tells them to put down their nets on the other side and they catch a lot of fish, 153 fish. A lot of speculation has gone on about that number. St. Jerome claimed that it was known to the ancients that there were 153 kinds of fish in the whole world, and the fish stood for souls, so the number meant that they caught every kind of everyone, and all souls were saved. I like that way of thinking. But then the disciples eat the fish. (laughs) So I wonder if this whole scene is just more about something ordinary. Jesus makes them breakfast. But breakfast after being dead or born again might be amazing. Just being able to smell the warmth of the fire, the taste of charcoal broiled fish at sunrise on a beach, the extraordinary ordinary. How in the world? Do we experience Easter? The defeat of death, resurrection. I mean, of course, at one level, it's obvious. It's a spring holiday. Easter is celebrated on the Sunday that follows the first full moon after the spring equinox. I like that. It ties the Christian liturgical calendar to the rhythms of the planet, to the migration of birds to the mating of frogs, to the amount of light in our days. Though at times the church has tried to distance itself from these natural things, what for? To what end? Yeah, God may be entirely other, ungraspable, but why would that mean we experience God's revelation with our minds and not our bodies? That separation is artificial. We're made of dirt, according to the creation account in Genesis. Jesus breathed out carbon dioxide into the fleshy lungs of the disciples last week. Receive the Spirit, he says. This whole thing, it's not about holy sparkles and disembodied beings. Living in Minnesota, surely we know what spring means. And it is no small thing. We are so deprived in winter of color, light, sound, smell. It's almost like being in a sensory deprivation chamber. Some of us are nearly driven insane by it. Whether or not we're observing the church calendar, we need spring, Easter. In the depths of our beans, like I mean our bones, they need vitamin D. Our joints, the health of our cells actually depend on it. The church likes to emphasize that this season is holy. That's fine, I guess. But as long as we open the doors and allow the boundaries to be crossed when we consider what it is that holy even means, it's not something restricted to church sanctuaries, obviously. God's work. And the world is everywhere apparent if we pay attention, and we need to pay attention. Faith isn't about striving as much as it is about being awake. Jesus gives the disciples some fish, breakfast. He doesn't give them a list of dogmatic imperatives. How do we experience Easter? Easter. Let me just think of the days before trucking companies and the 24-hour grocery store. If Easter didn't come, we would starve to death. The ground frozen, the root cellar empty. At times, I think that we should all really just move to a climate that is more conducive to human life. But there's something about the season that's good practice. You have to be patient There's a lot of waiting involved, waiting for the ground to thaw, waiting for the birds to come back. We have no choice, really. We will contemplate death, because death is everywhere around us. Everything is dead. And then it will come back to life again. I've heard over and over and over as a pastor that we're not really supposed to talk like this. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the greening of the grass have nothing in common. But I'm not convinced. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Light. Living water. He comes back from the dead and then he cooks some food. Adam and Eve, so the story goes, had to leave the garden because they wanted to be like God. But maybe they didn't really know what God was like. Maybe when you're born again, you become more grounded. Maybe that is godlike after all. Most hours of most days are not all that eventful if you expect grandiosity. But if you look at it another way, every moment is filled with electrifying content. Or at least something interesting. We haven't always been very respectful of the creation that sustains us, though our need for it cannot be overstated. We need gravity, sun, and water. We actually need worms to aerate the soil so that we can grow food. We need living bacteria in our bodies in order for our digestive systems to work. Human self-sufficiency is absolutely a lie. We are absolutely dependent on God's creation. And maybe if the church hadn't played such a big part in denigrating it, the planet wouldn't be in such bad shape. On the farm where I live, the most exciting thing about spring, or one of them anyway, is the frogs. The only thing we've been hearing all winter is the wind blowing and the dogs barking incessantly and unpleasantly. But then finally, the frogs start to sing. And every frog species has a different song. The gray tree frog sounds musical, bird-like. The copse frog has this sort of fast metallic buzz. The mink frog, which by the way has bright green lips, sounds like a hammer striking wood. The green frog like the pluck of a loose banjo string. I could go on and on and on. Their music isn't just for our listening pleasure, which is almost surprising because it brings so much. It's about mating. They're making their presence known. And they mate prolifically. Some frogs are called explosive breeders. Female frogs can lay thousands of eggs at one time. 2,000 to 20,000 eggs. 20,000 eggs. The frog is all about transformation and fertility. It can go from an egg to a tadpole to a full-fledged amphibian in as little as six weeks. This is called metamorphosis. Some people have compared the three stages of the frog to the Holy Trinity. The ancient Egyptians revered a frog goddess. When the Nile flooded in the spring, it brought fertility to an otherwise barren land. It also brought millions of frogs. So the frogs became symbols of birth and resurrection. Women wore amulets during childbirth, frog amulets. And they were inscribed with the words, I am the resurrection. Sometimes these amulets were used by early Christians. I like thinking about that. Frogs are excellent Easter symbols. Wood frogs bury themselves in dead leaves for the winter. They actually stop breathing during hibernation and their hearts quit beating. Ice crystals form in their bodies and they come back alive again. How is that not miraculous? If Lent is about paying greater attention to death, then Easter leads us to a greater appreciation of life, and not just ours, obviously. There's a male frog that carries its young on its back until they become adults. The male Darwin frog takes its mate's eggs into its mouth as soon as they show signs of life, and they stay there until they emerge as full-grown frogs. In recent years, a painkiller with 20 times the power of morphine has been found in the skin of a frog. Frogs have incredible senses. Their bulging eyes can see 360 degrees, and they hear with their eyes. Or or at any rate, a spot behind their eyes. I mean, imagine that. We can hardly compete with the frog. I think we may experience mercy, love, justice, Easter, in the so-called mundane details of life, as much as in anything spectacular. And you can actually be attentive to it every day. And it is not regulated by church dogma. Jesus' questions to Peter seem almost like a song to me. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. At any rate, there's rhythm and there's grace to it. Peter denied Jesus three times by a charcoal fire. Now Jesus says Peter, sit down and eat by a charcoal fire and be three times redeemed. Maybe he's telling Peter, Don't worry if you don't have everything down. Don't worry if you have everything figured out. Maybe broken and misguided belief is even okay in the end. Just do this. Just do this. Feed my sheep. Feed the hungry. In some circumstances, that might just be your own baby or your grandma or the seeds that are growing from your garden. I'm not meaning to suggest the world doesn't need large-scale transformation or that you don't need to be a part of that. But doing justice doesn't mean that you have to be skilled in organizing a mass movement. What can you do with what is around you? Now, here, nothing special. There are many, many, many ways to practice resurrection. Resurrection.